Good morning. If you guys can come back and find a seat, that would help us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. If you happen to see us this morning, I guess. Okay. Um, Yeah, no, it was a year ago today we were on this stage in front of most of you, and I think that's something beautiful about a church body is that we do things together. We do things as a family. Um, And I I don't want to miss this moment just to emphasize that, that yesterday we had a memorial service for a saint who loved the Lord his whole life and and loved and served this church body. Uh, Today we gave out a rose because we had a new baby in the back, Abel. Last week we gave out a rose. Um, We gave out an engagement rose. And today my wife and I celebrate our first anniversary. And um, there are people here who uh, are battling cancer and fighting difficulties. And all these things are what a church is. Um, It's a real place with real people, with pain, with difficulty, with things to celebrate, with things to mourn. Um, And I think that to miss this opportunity in this moment and say, we've had all that in the past couple weeks, um, just encapsulates exactly what the Lord meant for his church. Uh, And and I just want to read 1 Peter 4, 10. I know we're supposed to be in Psalms. Uh, and we'll get there. First um, Peter four ten. As each has received a gift, Peter says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And that's what we are as a church body. We're stewards of God's grace. Not just the staff, not just those in leadership, but every one of us are stewards of God's grace for one another. And so how we love and how we serve really reflects that ministry God's given us as his ministers of that very grace. Uh, That each one of us serve one another and share in some way God's heart for this people. Um, So thank you. I just want to emphasize the family nature. Uh, And say in a day and age where people go to churches of their age groups, there's a reason why God didn't design the church that way. Because we're meant to carry things together and celebrate together and mourn together. So... Thank you for that. Turn to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Take a left turn here. David is referred to as a a man after God's own heart. Um, And that title always cracks me up because if you read the story of David, it doesn't necessarily measure up to that title. Um, Has his own share of difficulties and, and struggles, but some of the things that he wasn't was what his predecessor Saul was. Saul was a man who was... Um, impatient. He was quick to try to exact revenge when he felt wronged personally. Um, He was chosen because he was head and shoulders above everyone else, and he was very handsome, um, very strong, and that's what the people of Israel wanted. They wanted a strong king who could defend them in battle. Now, the problem with that is Israel had a strong king who could defend them in battle, right? They were a theocracy. Their king was... God. And so when uh, Samuel anoints Saul, he actually anoints him not as a king, as a prince over the land of Israel, because Israel has a king. And his name is Yahweh. Um, David ends up um, fulfilling that throne because Saul messed up. Uh, If you remember the story, Saul ended up uh, executing a sacrifice as a priest when Saul was not a priest, he was a king. Uh, he was impatient, not waiting for Samuel to come. And Samuel said, uh, because you acted hastily, 
the Lord's going to remove his throne from your family. Your, your children will not, will not inherit this throne. And somebody else will, and that person was David. David, fittingly enough, wrote this psalm about somebody that was very frustrating to him. It says on the title that this is, um, he's saying this to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, Cush, a Benjaminite, is, is kind of hard to pin down exactly who or what that is, but what it stands for is a person who um, was of a, a noble tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, yet was not fulfilling that role, um, which would be Cush. A Cushite. So David starts the psalm like this. Uh, point number one in your notes. David asks God to search himself and to take refuge in him. Um, that, I messed up the grammar on that one. Um, we're good. We're good. <laughs> David asks God to search him and David te- takes refuge in the Lord. Um, I love David's heart with this because we've seen this before in the Psalms, but David, David wants his sin to be made evident to him because he knows that his sin will stop him from walking with the Lord. And so when David pursues the Lord, he, he often asks, Lord, if there's anything in me, please reveal it. I don't want to live with that in me. Verse 1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. David begins in these first two verses by setting the stage that he has people pursuing him who would like to tear him apart. Uh, Now, for David, it's obviously a much bigger stage than it would be for us as 21st century believers. I'm pretty sure that people aren't chasing us into the wilderness into caves trying to murder us. Um, However, hopefully in some regards we can relate to this, that um, there seem to be people who wish ill on us or or, um, in in some ways want evil things or or bad things to happen to us. Um, Now, I've mentioned before that sometimes the reason for that is because you're a jerk. And um, that's, that's not people hating you. You just need to not be a jerk. Um, the, the, the other reason that could be is because, I mean, Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. So it should be expected as a follower of God that if people persecuted the, the one we're following, they should be persecuting us also. David experienced this. Um, and David knew where his refuge was. Uh, I think that for us, oftentimes, in a trial or a difficulty, we can run all over the place to find refuge. We can run to uh, friends and family and just share with them, and that's a good place if they're believers. Um, we can run to social media, or we can try to hide or numb the pain through um, drugs, sex, alcohol. You can, you can run all kinds of different ways, but for David, his first place that he ran in a time of difficulty was the Lord. Because the Lord, he said, was his refuge. It was his safe place in, in the, the most pure meaning of that term. Um, he asked God to save me from my pursuers and to deliver me. David didn't find it in himself to be this mighty warrior who could 
save himself. He says, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. David understands that he can't save himself. That those pursuing him may be like a lion who will tear him apart. Um, read several commentaries on this passage this week, and I just wanted to share this with you because I thought it was humorous that um, one of the main ones we use is by Tremper Longman. He's a phenomenal scholar, but he spent a paragraph describing for us what a lion is. So um, if you've ever wondered what a lion is, it's this animal that can rip apart its prey into pieces and devour it. Um, so that's straight from Tremper Longman. That's a quote. Um, <laughs> I honestly, like, every, most of the things he's written I really love. I just thought that was really funny to, like, include in there what a lion was and thought that would be helpful if you could laugh with me in that. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't waste the paragraph. Um, yeah, he, he, these people pursuing him, he says, lest they overcome me and like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. There's no help. But David takes refuge in the Lord. Um, it, that's an anti-American value. I don't know if you know that. Um, because Americans, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? You know what I heard about that phrase, that it was a joke? Um, that it was referring to somebody would pull someone over a fence by their bootstraps. And so they said, well, why don't you just do it yourself? Pull yourself up over the fence by your bootstraps. But it's a joke because it doesn't work like that. Um, so we've we've basically framed American mentality on this joke from about 70 years ago. Okay. Um, there's a reason that it was a joke, because you can't do that by yourself. And the, uh, David understood this. Um, that's why he says, I take refuge in the Lord. I can't do it by myself. And then David does this. He takes a step back. And in humility, he says, Lord, but what if I was a jerk? What if that other option happened where I did something wrong? Um, again, David is, is establishing another anti-American value here. He says, oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. David, his step back is to say, but Lord, if, if I've been prideful, if I'm not innocent, if I'm guilty, if I've done this to my enemy, if I have by any means deserved this, let it happen to me. Why? Because David wants justice. He follows a righteous God that he wants to act in his righteousness. God is a just God who punishes sin, and that is a good thing. And I don't want us to shirk away from that or pretend like that doesn't happen. That's a good thing. And let me explain to you why. There are murderers in this world. There are pedophiles in this world. If they go unpunished, that's not right, is it? That God is just is a beautiful gift that he has given to us. That we should not be ashamed of. But that we should rejoice in. God is just. He is righteous. He does things 
rightly, for he is holy. He acts out of this need to be good and to make things right. David knows this about his God, and he loves this about his God. In him he takes refuge. Verses 3 through 5 should echo in some way Psalm 139 for you where David says, Search me, O God, and know me. Try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's a hard prayer for us to pray sometimes. That's a hard prayer, especially when we know our own hearts. I I think that for me, reading this as I was studying it, um, that's such a bold prayer for David to pray. And there are times in my life where I can't pray that. Lord, if I've done any of this, if any of this is my fault, punish me for it. Um, I don't know if we would say those things to God. Because we know in times of our lives that we are guilty. But we act like we're the innocent ones. David here has searched himself. He's known. Um, He's pursued counsel he sought the lord and he comes away with lord i don't know what's going on i just need you to be just and i need you to be righteous i don't know why these things are happening but he begins that by saying if there's any wrong in my hands if i've repaid my friend with evil if i've plundered my enemy without cause please let them pursue me and overtake me David is an example here of humility. Pursuing the Lord and saying, Lord, if I'm standing, if I'm standing on, on sand, if I'm not standing on firm ground, please keep me in check. David is humble. And we should be too. Number two in your notes, verses six through eleven. The Lord is righteous and just. He will take revenge and will judge all people. The Lord is righteous and just. He will take revenge and he will judge all people. When we talk about anger in the Bible, we really have two categories for anger. We have righteous anger and we have unrighteous anger. Um, Often what we display as human beings is something called unrighteous anger where we have, somebody has sinned against our being, and so we are jealous of ourselves, and how dare they say something like that to me? And so we act angry out of that, and we punish other people for sinning against us, or so we've deemed fit. Um, That, there's a a word for that, it's called sin. So um, that's not an okay way to interact or engage with people, is in unrighteous anger. Um, usually that sin, by the way, is rooted in pride, which David just walked through with us. Um, There is a righteous anger, and that is jealousy for the Lord, or for his name or his reputation. Um, And that needs to come out in love and in gentleness as well. Um, Most of the time. Uh, The reason I say that is I don't want us to be keyboard warriors on Instagram and Facebook being like, how dare they say this thing about the Lord? I'm going to defend him. Um, The Lord Lord doesn't need you to defend him. Um, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the Lord of hosts. He has armies of angels. 
Um, people on Instagram don't don't need our. We don't need to cast our pearls before swine. Let's leave it there. Um, <laughs> the Lord is righteous and just. There is a, a righteous anger. I think that one of our examples we see of this is Jesus in the um, in the temple flipping tables. That's usually the example people go to. That that's a righteous anger. Where Jesus says, how dare you turn my father's house into a den of robbers? Um, and he flips the tables of the money changers and people selling things in the temple because that's not what the Lord wanted for his house. Um, yeah, we'll leave it there for now. Righteous and unrighteous anger, keep those things in your head because often we think of anger as only sinful and it's not. Verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of your enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord is asked by David to arise in his anger. Why would the Lord be angry in this situation? Because unjust things are happening. Because he is jealous for his people. Because he loves his people, because his name is being profaned, because the one that he's anointed, who is characterized as a man after God's own heart, is being pursued unjustly. God is a just God. In his very nature, his character, his being, he is righteous. Opposition to his character, he will respond in righteous anger to. Now the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But eventually, he does respond. We praise God for that attribute of his. David asked the Lord to arise, to lift himself up against the fury of his enemies, to awake for him. He says, you have appointed judgment. You have appointed judgment. That's so countercultural for us sometimes who who want to exact our own vengeance who want revenge to be done and justice to be served any way possible we'd like to take that into our own hands in fact i hear believers say this all the time um it's not our job to be the judges yet with the caveat of paul says that we will judge the angels so just hold your horses. You'll get to be there at some point. It's not our caveat to be the judges of um, people's eternal states. It's not, that's not our goal. Um, that's a very messy situation. Um, I, let me just unpack that really quickly and say, in some way, we need to hold our brothers and sisters accountable. Um, that, that is healthy because the Lord is jealous and just and righteous and we want our brothers and sisters to walk with him fully um, there are ways to do that in love gently and there are times to talk about that that aren't right now verse 8 the Lord judges the peoples the Lord judges the peoples an action of God is that he judges and he will. This is one of my favorite things that celebrities say. Only God can judge me. Yes, and he will. That's not something that you should be 
asking for. Um, yeah, God will judge you. Yep, that's what he does. The Lord judges the people. It's verse 8. And David, a pursuer of the Lord, asks, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. What a statement David just made. Now, if any of you, we have, uh, this is our prayer Sunday, and after this, second hour classes are canceled, so we'll be breaking up into different rooms. If any of you ask for the prayer request of the Lord to judge you according to your righteousness and your integrity, most of the room should look at you like, um, that was a really weird statement. (laughs) Uh, Please don't say that. Um, We, as believers, are very well trained to understand that our righteousness isn't our own, it's Jesus's. So we would say, Lord, judge me according to your son's righteousness, right? Not our own, because what righteousness do we have? David is is fleshing this out, though, of that previous statement of, Lord, check in my heart. Is there any wicked way? Is there any evil? Is there anything taking away from your justice, from your righteousness? And if there is, have those enemies pursue me. Now David's on the, if there's not, then judge me according to that righteousness and see my integrity, see my heart. Verse 9, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. I love the way that the English is translated here in the ESV. Sorry, the Hebrew is translated into the English in the ESV. Because it it even pulls out that emotion. um, That emotion of David here in the Psalms. I think that the Psalms are full of emotion. And it's always hard. Um... Uh, a, a practice I have is that emails and texts are for good news um, and that phone calls and in-person is for bad news. If, so <laughs> don't, don't expect, like, if you get a phone call from me that I'm just giving you bad news. I'm just saying I won't text you if I'm upset with you about what I'm upset with you about. Um, and the reason for that is you can't really read emotion in texts or emails, right? It's hard. Um, I mean, you could spin it any way you want. Um, Sometimes you get a text and you're like, wow, they're really angry with me, and they're really not. They were just either busy or that's just how they responded. It's it's words on a screen. It's hard to figure out. Um, Sometimes with the Bible, because it's words on a page, it's hard to figure out what that emotion is. Um, because biblical authors and the Holy Spirit are not void of emotion. In fact, one of the descriptions of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is that he is grieved. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, which is an emotion. Um, I think that you see Jesus' emotions displayed throughout uh, the gospel narratives as it describes how he interacts with people and what he sees, and he weeps when Lazarus is dead, and um, he longs for the people of um, the first century to be followers of the Lord. Um, Here, David shows some emotion. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. 
it sounds like he is so grieved by it. Like he is done with it. He's exhausted. Lord, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. May you establish the righteous. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week talking about how we're not really designed to know all the news of the world all the time. Um, We're not designed to be bearing the weight of every single thing all the time. Um, And that really didn't shift with the smartphone. It shifted with 24-hour news. Um, where we started to get news from everywhere all the time. We really just used to read the newspaper over breakfast for like 30 minutes and put it down, and that would be it for the day. They don't get alerts throughout the day of every bad thing that's happened in the world. Um, but we do. And I think that in, in, in an even more extreme sense, we can sometimes feel that. Lord, how come the wicked are winning? Why aren't you punishing the wicked? Where is the righteousness? Where is your justice? Are you ignoring it? And then I think of my favorite minor prophet, Habakkuk, and how he asked the Lord the same thing. And the Lord said, hey, um, calm down. That's the AJ version. Um, Calm down and uh, understand that I've got this handled. It's not up to you to fix it. David, it's not up to you to fix it. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. Amen. May you establish the righteous. Amen. And he's going to. He, he refers to God as the one who tests the minds and hearts. And then appeals to this character quality of God. Meaning it's innate to who he is. This is just who God is. He doesn't act righteous occasionally. He is righteousness. In his very nature. God tests minds and hearts. And he is righteous. God tests minds and hearts, and he is righteous. Um, For some of us in this room, this should be a scary phrase. God tests minds and hearts. He knows your mind. He knows your heart. He does. For God does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God knows your heart. He tests your heart. Um, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked his soul hates. As followers of God, we should expect this testing. He is a righteous God. Now, where does David find his comfort? He already said that God is his refuge. He's going to use another word for God here to say that God is his shield. God is his shield. Um, Tremper Longman did not go into detail on what shields are, so I'll do my best here. Um, Shield, so he, you could just think of the, the imagery of defending. Um, the God is the defender. Um, the shield would, would take on arrows and deflect attacks of the enemy. God is David's shield here. Shield is with God. God saves the upright in heart. And then he says this very uplifting phrase. God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. You don't really have that on a lot of coffee cups, do you? Um, God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. 
because of this innate thing in us where we love justice and we love when the bad guy gets punished and we love to be executors of revenge. I almost said that really weird. Um, Because of those things in us, we often overtake God's role. And we assume that God is not God, God is not seeing what we're seeing. Um, those are both wrong things. God is a righteous judge, and he is patient and does things in his timing. He is always at work. He is always at work. Um, often we can feel like he's not at work. Often we can feel like he isn't seeing things, or he's slow, or he's, he's missing things. And part of that is because um, we pray and ask God for things and we assume that we are the sovereign ones who God should respond to and do things the way we've asked him to. Um, and if you just think back a, a couple decades to things you've prayed for and that God didn't allow to happen, you should be very <laughs> grateful that God doesn't always answer your prayers the way that you hope, the way that you want. God is a righteous judge. He feels indignation every day. These things don't happen without him feeling indignation, without him being upset about it enough to eventually judge, and he will. Finally, um, point number three in your notes. David focuses on allowing the wicked to dig their own grave, and he ends in praise of the Lord. And this is another place where David is contrasted against Saul, where Saul pursues David and wants to execute his justice because this man's going to overtake his throne. And David sees Saul in a cave and just cuts off a corner of his robe and feels grieved about even that. So, verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. What does wetting a sword mean? It's not a phrase we use often. Some of you know. Um, I heard somebody whisper it. That's great. Um, sharpen. It means to sharpen a sword. It means to wet it against usually a wetting stone. You'd be sharpening your sword uh, to ready it for battle, for, in this case, execution of judgment. His sword is being wet. If a man does not repent. And it says he has bent and readied his bow. God's justice will be executed. It will be. Take comfort in that. The wicked things that happen in this world that seem unrelenting don't go unpunished. And it's not on us to punish. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. This person is just continually living in this wicked state where they're pregnant with mischief. They are um, conceiving evil and they're giving birth to lies. 
Essentially, everything in their being is wicked. All that they're producing is wickedness. They're just stewing in that, and it's this cycle. He makes a pit, digging it out, and he falls into the hole that he made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. Why? Because the Lord doesn't see the wickedness and ignore it. He's the one who punishes it. He's the one who executes judgment. Even Paul in Romans 10 says, uh, quotes the Old Testament, says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's Romans 12. Um, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Um, so what's our goal? It's not to repay wickedness. God's going to do that. Our goal is to walk in righteousness and to ask the Lord to continue to do what's in his character to do. Our just and righteous God. And then he ends with this. I will give the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. I will give the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the Lord Most High. David rests in these true character attributes of God. That he's righteous, that he deserves praise, that he deserves thanks. Now, interesting to note, as David was writing this psalm, did this thing that he wanted to happen happen? Probably not in the course of writing this psalm. Um, So then why is David rejoicing? Usually we're thankful to God, when he does something we've asked him to do, right? Or when he provides something we've wanted him to provide. Maybe that's the wrong formula. Maybe David is thankful to God for his very character and his very being. God, I know you are righteous and just, and I have so much faith and trust in that, that you will do your will in your timing, in your way, that I will give you thanks due to you for your righteousness. And I will sing praise to your name, for you are most high. Over the course of these 17 verses, all David's done is praise the attributes of God and say, I've seen these wicked things, and I know God's going to handle it. And I can rest in that place. Because even when it seems like the wicked are winning, even when it seems like justice is ignored, I know who my God is. And I know his character. And I know these things are not ignored forever. For in his character, he must be righteous and he must be just. Uh, three points in application. Very big font this, this time, so you may not even need reading glasses. Um, Number one, in humility, ask the Lord to search you before you assume you're in the right. Um, In humility, ask the Lord to search you before you assume you are in the right. Um, This is just one of those really good, very practical, across-the-board steps we can take. Um, Often, so a belief, when you believe something, you assume you're right because you believe it. That's what a belief is. Um, often when we have a belief like this, we, we, we think we should act in it and that we should react in certain ways because we are right. 
And often it doesn't cross our mind that, wait a minute, there's a possibility out there that I can be wrong. That act of that, wait a minute, is called humility. So in that piece of humility, ask the Lord to search you before you assume you're in the right, before you um, decide to tell somebody how evil and wicked they are, maybe ask the Lord. Maybe find out more facts. Maybe see if you're the one in the wrong. Number two, allow the Lord to execute his plan. And I don't mean that you're going to stop his plan when I say allow. Allow the Lord to execute his plan We don't need to be the champions of our own justice. Allow the Lord to execute his plan. We don't need to be champions of our own justice. And I think that there's two types of people in here. There's the people who, when their character is attacked, they feel the need to immediately defend their character. Because how dare you attack my character? And there's the other type of people who feel like they can never defend their own character um, because they don't know how to do that. Um, They're not really defenders of themselves. Um, One of my classmates said this, and it was really helpful. He said, we don't defend ourselves. We defend the gospel. We don't defend ourselves. We defend the gospel. So when the gospel is attacked, we defend. When we are attacked, we don't need to defend ourselves. The Lord knows who you are. He will defend. Um, and now there's a bunch of nuances to that. I understand. It's a very broad statement for a purpose. Um, I'm not going to go into all the nuances. Just general rule of thumb. If you are attacked, take a breath. You don't need to defend yourself. You need to defend the gospel. Um, The Lord knows. Uh, A great um, theologian, Winston Churchill, said um, that a lie gets halfway around the world before truth gets a chance to put its pants on. Um, And it's true. Lies spread fast. But, I mean, the the part of that quote is that truth does eventually put its pants on and get caught up. Um, Yeah. Be patient. Be patient. And then number three, always in praise and adoration of God in any and every circumstance. Again, David here didn't get what he wanted. Um, that we know of immediately within the 17 verses of the psalm. Um, he waited for the Lord. And he said, Lord, I know that these things are in your character. And I know that you are good. I know that you are righteous. I know that you are just. And for those reasons alone, I will praise and adore you. Not because of what you've done for me, but because of who you are in your character. So if we're going to take anything away from today, who God is in his character, not what he has done for you, is worthy in and of itself of praise. Who God is in his character, not what he has done for you, is in and of itself worthy of praise. We're going to end this time with a time of communion. I ask the elders to come forward. Talked about um, who God is in his character and that being of itself worthy of praise. And now we're going to celebrate what God has done for us and that being worthy of praise too. Um,
God did this. He sent his son to die for us because that is his character. Because he is just and he is righteous, so sin must be punished. However, he didn't make us be the sole um, ones being punished for sin. He sent his son to do that. And so this morning, we're going to have bread and we're going to have juice to remember the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus who paid the price for our sins, that we don't have to spend eternity in suffering, but can spend it in the presence of God forever and ever. That is such good news. This morning, as we pass the, the plates, I ask that you would, um, you would abstain from taking communion if there's any um, hindrance in your walk with the Lord. Um, if you are not a believer, we ask that you would abstain from taking communion today. But um, everyone else, we, we ask that you would inspect your hearts as, as the Apostle Paul asks us to and take this seriously, that um, the Lord wants us to be walking with him fully. And so maybe there's some repentance you need to do before you take communion. Um, but spend this time in praise, in worship. I know that this is usually a quieter time, but it's not sad. It's celebratory. We're celebrating what Jesus has done for us. Lord God, we, we give you so much praise and glory for what you've done. But we give you praise for who you are and your character. Lord, um, we don't always understand it's not always in our timing or in our plans, but it's in yours. Your plan is executed perfectly for thousands of years. So, Lord, we submit to you. We know that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Lord, help us submit our plans to you. In Jesus' name, amen.